0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Meaningful Learning with Dr. Samantha Gutrera podcast. Many of you know that I started this podcast as a way to share academic conference presentations, and I expanded this work in spring of 2020 in order to bring you the audio versions of the pandemic pedagogy conversations I've been hosting on my YouTube channel, Imagining a New We. For this upcoming school year, I'm going to be bringing you a second series that I'm hosting on YouTube called Source Saturday, where I talk with historians and creators and archivists about primary and secondary sources that they have familiarity with and to talk about what they read from them. Although the series does work better as a video because we screen share the source as we discuss it, there are many interesting elements of our conversation that uh, that do work as a podcast. But I do urge you to check out the YouTube video so you can see the source for yourself. Like the Pandemic Pedagogy series, these podcast episodes are unedited conversations, so you may hear buffering or the repetition of a question or an answer if Zoom wasn't working that great, but the content remains fundamentally the same as the video. Enjoy this version of Source Saturday. In this video, we are talking with Jennifer Shaw, whose chapter in this collection focuses on Jewish women's experiences during World War II. Jennifer is a PhD candidate in the Women's Studies Department at Western University, and her dissertation is on women's Jewish women's experiences during World War II. And It's really great because um, the source that she's bringing in is an oral history, not just a record in the archive or a photograph, although I think we're going to talk about some of those too, but an oral history with with a woman who lived during World War II. So let's go over to Zoom and talk with Jennifer. Jennifer, thank you so much for agreeing to speak with me. I love this collection, and I am really excited about your chapter in this collection. So before we get into talking about the chapter and some sources you brought for
1: us, uh, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. So my name is Jennifer Shaw. Um, I am a PhD. PhD candidate in the Department of Gender, Sexuality, and Women's Studies at the University of Western Ontario, and my my research focuses on the lives and experiences of girls and Jewish girls and women on the home front during World War II, and trying to add a new a new chapter to both uh, women's history in Canada and Jewish history in Canada. Um, so that's that's what I do uh, on the professional side. On the personal side, I'm a mom of four. Uh, and uh, trying to find time to sleep in the midst of all the different things I have on my plate at the time, at any one time, so.
0: Well, um, thank you. I mean, this is
1: is not really early, but
0: (laughs) thank you for (laughs) getting up for this. You could have just been like, I'm gonna nap instead. Um, And you, like, literally are adding a new chapter to this history because um, you have a chapter in this collection on women in World War II. Um, What is the title of the chapter? What is the chapter about? Uh, And I have have Betty here, just so you know. She's (laughs) going to be mischievous, I can already tell.
1: Well, like i told you earlier we can we can add my cats to we can add my cats to the to the midst (laughs) to the mix too uh so my so my chapter in in the collection making it's called the collection itself is called making the best of it it's about the lives of girls and women uh during world war ii in canada and newfoundland so my chapter is called uh quote a token jew everywhere unquote canadian jewish women on the home front um and it's it's really it, this part of this chapter um, is based on oral histories that I conducted with several elderly women uh, over the past few years who lived through the war years in Canada and about about their experiences and their their activities and their feelings about what it meant to be a Jewish woman in Canada during the war. Because what we what we all know, the story we all know, and we're all most of us are familiar with, is that Canadian women went to work. They filled the factories so men could be free to go overseas to to fight. Um, And it's always this—it's always this positive story about um, women working so that so that men could fight. The the phrase that was often used is "We serve so that men can fight," and it's often embodied by the picture we all know of Rosie the Riveter, even though that's American. Um, But the one thing that the, the history doesn't do, that story doesn't do, is it doesn't break down this category of women. It's mm-hmm. just women in one kind of huge block. And what's really, what's really fascinating is when you go and look at the literature, the, the, the historical sources, is that there's been very, very little work done on any particular groups of women, whether that's uh, divided by race or, um, or uh, religion, or religion there's very, very little work done. So there's a, lot of work been, there's a lot of work that's been done on Japanese women because of their experiences uh, being interned during the war. And Pamela Sugeman and uh, Mona Oikawa have both done incredible work to document those experiences. But other than that, there's almost nothing on groups of specific women. So in my research, and I've been doing this now for six years, um, I, found, I found one article on Black women during the war in Canada, one article on Italian women during the war in Canada. I know of one article on Métis women in Canada during the war, and that's it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, no, so no articles on First Nations women that I've, ever, that I've ever come across. I'm not saying they're not there, but yeah. in all my searching over six years, I've never come across it. Uh, no articles on Chinese women. No articles on Muslim women. Um, so the historical record is really lacking um, in terms of trying to talk about the experiences of particular groups of women. And for, I would hope, obvious reasons, Jewish women had a particular uh, connection to the war that other groups of women did not have, or at least not to the same extent. Mm. And so that's what my that's what my research is really trying to capture is what what were the particular um feelings and experiences related to being a jewish woman on the home front during the war so that's that's where my that's what my research grows out of
0: yeah you know i've never i've never really thought about it about how how much when we say women during world war 2 it is these kind it's just this universal category of women that that like within it we are kind of i mean this sounds this sounds kind of big but we're like conditioned not to think about those those other types of experiences that are not just women's experiences but they intersectional experiences um, with ethnicity and class uh, ancestry race uh, religion and so that's really it's, I guess, not surprising when you say you haven't been able to find histories related to specific groups of women, but um, it's also surprising. And so, I mean, that's why the collection is so great, but that's why your chapter is really unique. And I assume why the sources that you're using are oral histories rather than kind of traditional archival sources.
1: That's definitely part of it. And there's there's far more in the archives than you would expect. Still not nearly enough because women's history, women's records and women's history have generally not been taken seriously up until right. much more recent times. So a lot of the records, families often tend to throw the records of women out. Mm-hmm. So there's very while there's some material there um which i have i have also researched and 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 looked into um the extent of that is not nearly to the extent of what we know about men on the home front mm-hmm. or sorry during during the war um so pretty much the only way of getting at the more personal stories is by doing these oral histories and and frankly not to put too fine a too too fine a gloss on it we almost out of time to collect those stories,
0: yes.
1: Um, because the the youngest woman I inter- I've interviewed was 88 at the time, um, and th- and that was the youngest. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those stories and and in, in any ins- personal insight into feelings and you know personal experiences are almost all gone because very few of those have been recorded, um, either either um, orally or in, in written sources. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is, this is my challenge to the work that's already been done. Uh, in, in some of my articles, I, in some of the stuff I have published elsewhere, I have taken Jewish historians to task for not including the voices of, of women. And I've taken, I've taken women's historians to task for not including the voices of, of Jewish people. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really kind of a challenge to how history has been, has been done And it has been done, and to try and save at least a few of these stories before they are really gone for good.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, because, like, you know, this moment, this pandemic moment allows us to think about the creation of history and the creation of records during moments. And so um, that was actually how Sarah Glassford and I first started talking for the Pandemic Pedagogy series. And so we know that our feelings are shifting and changing, like things don't feel as visceral to me as they did in April. They certainly won't feel as visceral to me (laughs) in 30 years. Mm 50 years. And so I like the fact that you're bringing in the fact that we need to be aware of the oral histories that, that if we are collecting oral histories of certain time periods, that the, the, the window is closing, um, to get those types of stories that really will help us understand people's experiences. And so I'm really excited to be able to highlight your
1: work and being able to do that um you said oh sorry no i was just gonna say and and one thing i I also i I, i'd like to include is just that women themselves haven't included haven't considered their stories important Mm -hmm. because we've been conditioned Mm -hmm. to not have been we've been conditioned to not think of them as important Mm -hmm. Um, all the women i all the women i interviewed with one exception and i've interviewed 12 women um all of them said something some version of are you sure you want to hear this? I didn't do anything important. Mm. Um, and the anecdote I like to share—that I, I like to share to really illustrate this—is that in the Ontario Jewish Archives, there's um, there's uh, an oral history that was done in the 1970s with a woman who was heavily involved in war work. Like she literally put her, put in thousands of hours of work over the over the six years of the war and her name is on thousand literally thousands of documents like that's not hyperbole that is literally thousands of documents her name is on she as a member of a committee as chairman of a committee at the time um and in this oral history that was about her husband's uh, film company that he ran during the war years, she never once mentions her own war work Mm. not once and that's very that's something we see very typically with women is that they say something to the effect, I was just doing, I I was just doing what was expected. It was just, it was just life. Mm -hmm. And they don't put a, they don't put historical importance on those activities. And so I want to highlight that as well is that women's lives and experiences have value and they have historical importance.
0: Yes. And that the role of educators and historians can be to help highlight and demonstrate that importance back because it's like this vicious circle, right? We say the stories aren't important, so we don't collect them. And then because we don't collect them, we say they're not important, right? So Mm -hmm. um, how do we intervene in that really Kind of vicious cycle of denigrating certain experiences as being not important, which um, often, like even just the discipline of history, has created to like say this is the evidence that's important and this is the evidence that's not. And one of the reasons why I wanted to do the Source Saturday series is because. I feel like we often fetishize just archival records when there's so many other sources that we can bring up and highlight to create this kind of tapestry, this narrative of the past in ways that aren't just beholden to an archive. And archives are super important, but it is that like, it's the, it's the people and the culture behind the archives that have excluded so many
1: experiences. Well, there's uh there's an oral historian, uh, very well known in in the oral history field by the name of Alessandro Portelli. He's a Ata- he's an Italian guy, and early '80s, I think it was. He wrote a book uh, called The Death of Luigi Trastulli, where he talks about how we pr- how we privilege the written record over the oral record. Mm. And he he points out, and I, and I've always I've always loved this from the time I read it. It's it's just so stuck with me is that. He's, he points out how many of our written records rely on, the, on an oral source. So he says, think of a newspaper article that says sources relate or, or um, trial records that are based on oral testimony. Mm-hmm. But somehow, but somehow that the fact that it's written down is somehow more important or it gives it more credence or gives it more authority than just the words coming out of someone's mouth. Mm -hmm. even though they come from both, they both come from the same place. They're both coming from an oral source, but somehow we don't give that oral testimony the same weight that we do the written record. And so that's another, that's a reason why I like oral history because you get, you get it right from the horse's mouth, so to speak. Um, And it's, it's often a way of getting into the stories that we've never heard before.
0: Mm hmm. mm -hmm. And I mean, that's important to think about, too, because of like literacy, right? Like who has had access to reading and writing? Um, And therefore, like, what do we privilege when we privilege written sources? And what are we systematically excluding? so why don't we go to the quote that you provided from your article um as a way to kind of talk about what you found in your oral histories and um and how it like what what do you read from a source like this what do you read from oh see here i am using like literacy language what do you get from sources like this when you were engaging in the interview what were you thinking what were you thinking what kind of analysis have you uh generated from conversations that you've had with fran and others like
1: her so this this little snippet here um the question i asked the, the question i was asking when i when i did this this part here um I was asking about how the Jewish community felt about the war because there's a scholar, um, there's a scholar who I, I won't, name, but he has a book. Um, he has a book where he, he talks about how Jews in Canada were um, very distant from the war um, physically, emotionally, you know, it, it wasn't big. And that always seemed, that always seemed off to me. And I was like, how could, how could the Jewish community not have a personal connection to the war? And so, in my interviews, I asked I asked all the women I spoke to about what the Jewish community was was feeling in the in the t- at the time of the war. If they if there was some sort if they felt there was some sort of um, special connection. Um, and so, this woman here, her name's Fran. Uh, she grew up in Toronto. She was born and raised in Toronto in Kensington in Kensington. Uh, the, Kensington area, so Kensington Market. If people have been there, um, which was at the time a very very Jewish neighborhood. Uh, if you go there now, you can still see synagogues that uh, if you can see the um, if you you can still see the Hebrew uh, like on the cornerstones and stuff like that. Um, if you're interested, the Ontario Jewish Archives actually has a walking tour of Kensington Market. Um, that is that's just a plug for them because it's really it's really cool what they've done. Um, but this is this is the area that Fran grew up in. And so um, this tight, these tightly knit Jewish communities, because at the time, Jews weren't actually allowed to live anywhere they wanted. There were housing covenants that prevented Jews from moving into certain areas. So Jewish areas tended to be very tightly uh, knit. They were very um, strongly bonded together because they were limited as to where they could move. So there's no way that... People weren't aware of the war, what was going on. Information was being passed constantly from family to family. Every time a letter came in, it was soon known by the entire community, Um, which actually in a different part of the interview I did with Fran, she actually talks about. Um, And so when I asked, I I, I took this question to Fran and I said, you know, there's this author that that says that Jews weren't really driven by by their jewish connection you know they weren't really really motivated um and they were they were very they were very distant from the actual experience of the war and so she, as soon as i started asking her about this, she started shaking her head at me and so this is where the snippet comes from and so the question i asked her was that was there a sense the jewish community had to be involved and she was absolutely yes very much so And so I said, well, was there this sense of a special responsibility? Um, And what she points out is that their families were there. Their families were there. And she said twice, you can see in the snippet, she Mm -hmm. says it twice. Because at the time, many of the residents of Jewish communities, Jewish communities um, in Toronto, Montreal, uh, Winnipeg, which are the three biggest Jewish communities in in the country at the time and still today, um, many of them were still first-generation immigrants. Or second-generation immigrants. So Fran was born in Canada, but her parents had immigrated. So almost all, almost the majority—I won't say almost all—say definitely the majority had family still in Europe, and so there was a very personal connection to the war years that that other families didn't, that other Canadians did not have to the same extent, Um, because there was this familial connection friendship connections people who had been left behind and of all the women almost all the women I talked to had some sort of familial connection um, still left in in Europe um, at least at least half of them did and so this is what Fran was talking about because she had family her mother her mother still had family um, in in Europe um, so she says so as soon as I said there's this Canadian scholar who suggested that Jews were far removed she cut me off and it's like nope that's not true and so, you know, by asking, asking someone different, right? Because, because women have not, have not been asked for their thoughts and opinions on these things, all of a sudden we see a different side. Mm-hmm. Um, because often, it was often the women who were maintaining those family connections, women are the letter writers, generally speaking. Um, they're the ones to maintain family networks. So in talking to women, It's a very different view because they were the ones writing the letter saying, how are you doing? And in a different part of the interview I did with France, she talks about the lengths her mother went to, to get information to Poland where she still had family and out of Poland. Um, They developed, they developed codes um, to get, to get information out because there were the Nazi censors were preventing information from coming out of of, um, Eastern Europe. Um, So, this is, what you, this is what talking to women does and getting their side of the story does. It reveals a new layer that, no, Jews weren't far removed from the conflict. They were intimately involved with it. And that was often because women were the ones to maintain those connections.
0: And you said that you started thinking about this differently because of photographs that you had seen that. That you said were kind of extraordinary, but were presented in very ordinary ways.
1: Mm-hmm. So this picture here is actually from this book. It's, it's Irving Abella's A Coat of Many Colors, uh-huh. uh, which is a, which is a um, uh, what's the word I want, legend in Jewish history. It's kind of, everyone knows it. It's yep. one of those books that everyone knows, everyone uses, everyone cites. You have to cite it or you're not going to be considered serious. Um, he has other books. Another book of his that um, just about every Canadian historian knows is uh, None is Too Many, which was mm-hmm. about uh, Jewish immigration into Canada during the war. But this picture, so that book is, is A Coat of Many Colors. The one I just showed is, is more a coffee table book. So it's lots of images. And this is one of the images in there. And so the caption on it, the caption on this photo is just Jewish women sewing for the war effort. And that's, that's it. it? <laughs> and if you look in the, t- if you look that, that is honest, honest to God, that is the caption. And if you look in the text uh, that accompanies the, the chapter, there's nothing, there's nothing talking about who these women were or what group they were with, or what were they like, even what were they sewing? Were they sewing ditty bags? Were they sewing seamen's vests? Were... Th- we don't know. There's nothing there. And if you go, if you go into the footnotes, nothing more, nothing more there. And so I was looking, you know, several years ago now, six, seven years ago now, I was looking at this book because I knew I wanted to do my research on something to do with Jewish women. I had a few ideas and I'm looking at this picture and I was like, who are these women? What are they doing? Where are they? I don't even know where they are. Like there's not even, there's not even that information about where they are. Um, so who were they? Because they were obviously doing something as women for the war effort, as Jewish women. I shouldn't even just say as women, as Jewish women. They were working together to do something for the war effort. So that got me thinking: Who are they? What are they doing? And then I think you have a second photo, mm-hmm. and that was the other spur. And this is from the this is from the same book. Next page, um, and you can the the second caption there lower left passover seder for uh canadian jewish servicemen held in the maritimes so um on passover which is one of our major which is one major jewish holiday one of our major holidays the first two nights are you're meant to have a um a, a rich a, a meal and there's a there's a service that goes along with it that you do at you do at home or or at synagogue sometimes um, if you're having the meal there but during the war years during the war years when Jewish servicemen were not at home uh, they were at bases or, or or you know in Halifax waiting to be shipped off um, they would do these big communal meals so you can see from this picture there's maybe 200 there's maybe 200 men there um, and there is a very there is a lone single woman standing right there at the front so this group of 200 men one woman right there um, who was she And then the bigger question for something like this is who cooked the meal? Because obviously a meal like that, who's going to be cooking it? The women, but who were those women? What group were they working with? How did they come together to put on a meal for 200 servicemen, which, you know, if you've ever cooked a meal, if you've ever cooked a meal for a family, you know how much effort that is now consider Now think about doing it for 200, 200 servicemen. And so, there again, just like the previous photo, the only information is that one caption, and there's nothing else. And so it was these two pictures that really it was these two pictures that really prompted my my interest um, to see, you know, what were Jewish women doing, what were what were they, what were their particular connections, and it's led me to places that. I would never have suspected, mm-hmm. um, thinking, thinking about race and citizenship in Canada, because prior to the war years, Jews now, like me, I mean, look at me, I'm pasty white, and this is not talking about Jews of color, of course, but most Jews are considered white. But prior to the war years, Jews were very definitely not white. And so the war, something that comes out in other parts of my research is how the Jewish community use the war years and, the, and war work, a lot of it, especially the main big pu- public, very visible projects done here in Canada during the war were conducted by women. And it was, those were very much leveraged to show non-Jewish Canadians just how Canadian Jews were. Because there was a there was a feeling amongst non-Jew a lot of non-Jewish Canadians that Jews weren't real Canadians mm-hmm. um, they didn't they weren't entitled to the same rights of citizenship um, and so there's very definite evidence showing that the Jewish community leveraged these projects to show their their loyalty and dedication to the country and its values um, and so I mean so from these two pictures. I've been led into really new um, conclusions, things that I definitely did not expect. And this is what comes of asking, what were the women doing? Mm -hmm. Like, just by asking that one simple question, what were the women doing? All of a sudden, I'm talking about race and citizenship in Canada.
0: You know, I think of um, the talk that I had with uh, historian Andrea Eidinger about um, a um, a tre- treasures for my daughter cookbook, a Jewish cookbook, uh, the the publication in the nineteen fifties, and mm-hmm. you know, she was talking about how these recipes were supposed to demonstrate this intersection between Canadian. Foods, Canadian culture, and traditional Jewish culture um, to like demonstrate that notion of citizenship, respectability, and class. And it's really interesting the ties to to a lot of what she was saying too. And I think that bringing in the oral histories here really help to develop that nuance. So just as a way to kind of summarize our talk, why is Studying um, women, Jewish women, uh, Jewish people during World War II. Why does that help us challenge how we normally
1: teach and understand World War II? So, so, as I was saying at the beginning, this this idea of women writ large, mm-hmm. right? This kind of giant category of women. What when we say what, when we talk about how women? worked for the war effort or went to work during the war and women entered factories. The unspoken, the unspoken adjectives attached to women are white Christian. Mm-hmm. And we would never really specify those. But that is assumed that is that is the unspoken words that are connected to women. Um, and that experience is assumed to stand in for all women. And that's just not true because because particular groups of women had a much different relationship to the warriors. Um, and the women I interviewed demonstrate that, whether it's when they're talking about trying to find a job and being turned away because they were Jewish, which happened to more than one woman that I interviewed. Um, for instance, during the warriors, when you would go in, as one of my women would talk talked about, one of the women I interviewed talked about. You know, she said, you'd go in for you'd go in to apply for a job and they'd ask you what church you go to and her quote was you'd say the palmer street synagogue and they'd say thank you we have all we need um so it wasn't as easy it wasn't as easy for jewish women to get a job necessarily and there's that it's it's often applied to black women but it it was true in the case of jewish women as well uh last hired first fired for instance Mm -hmm. but when we just talk about this when we talk about this when we talk about this grand story of women and the incredible work they did and don't get me wrong, women did do an incredible, incredible work during the war and the allies, Canada and the allies could not have won the war without the work of women, without the women's labor. Um, but when we talk about this story, that's only a story of, uh, only positive story and only a story of progress, we miss all the stuff that's going on under the surface. Mm -hmm. Um, and that was happening to other groups of women. Um, and by adding that in, our view of the warriors becomes much more nuanced um, and reveals new aspects so that we can understand it on a on a deeper level. It's not just, it's not just this positive story of we went overseas, we fought the we fought the Germans, we won. It is a story of how does a community it's it's a it's a story of also of how does a what was considered a foreign community become part of the Canadian uh, polity? How does it become part of the Canadian nation? How do they become citizens? Um, And to be frank, that's something that has really been left out of the conversation on race in Canada. One of the first things I do whenever I see a book on, on race in Canada is I turn to the, I turn to the index and see if Jewish Canadians or Judaism or Jewish Canadians are included anywhere in the index. And almost to almost to 100% of the things books i've looked at jewish canadians are not included um, even though prior to the war jews were considered a separate race and mm-hmm. that all disappears by, in, in the, by the 1950s into the 1950s that all that rhetoric disappears and jews are considered canadian we're white we're canadian yeah, we're part of the, we're part of the community but we've forgotten that history yeah. and so by by doing this work I'm hoping to add to that conversation about race in Canada and how does a community become, how does a community, a particular community, um, become, become part of Canada's citizens when they weren't necessarily mm-hmm. before.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for that. I think that's a really powerful, I think there's so many powerful takeaways from our conversation. And so thank you for bringing so much in related to um, understanding the different uh, concepts and categories and experiences of women um, as not universal. We need to disrupt that, that we need to disrupt the notion of just kind of um, written text as being the end-all, be-all of historical record, of thinking about Jewish Canadians as part of a larger understanding of how race and citizenship have always intersected in Canada, and that to dismantle white supremacy, for example, although you didn't say that necessarily, that we really need to investigate the ways that race and citizenship have always intersected in the nation. and. You know, something that I thought you were going to say when you started that last answer is like, we often think of this particular type of work of, of, of women in the factories, for example. But what I thought you were going to say is that we also need to think of the types of work related to things that are like traditional feminine tasks, such as cooking and doing sewing. Because I think those photographs, for example, or even just that description of what else Fran was doing during uh, World War II is really indicative of that. And so thank you, for bringing all of this to the conversation the chapter is great as part of the collection um, and I think that it it is a really it's a standout for understanding uh, Jewish history in Canada and therefore understanding Canadian history better so thank you so much
1: Jennifer this was wonderful thank you for having me I'm so grateful to have a chance to talk about this and I hope people find it useful and think about how how primary sources and and can spark new conversations. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And that's what I hope that this series can do. And I think you've demonstrated that to, to people really well um, in, in related to the sources that you brought to the conversation. So thank you again. Thank you. Have a great day. Bye. You too. Bye.